Okay, on Tuesday, our Prime Minister Boris Johnson, he announced that after so, so long, the churches in England are going to soon be able to get up and running again. That very soon we'll be able to see our friends and our Christian family uh, that will be able to attend services. That the 4th of July will be a true and proper Independence uh, Day. Well, can I ask you, Christian friends, how uh, your heart greeted that news? Uh, When you heard about uh, these restrictions being lifted, was there great enthusiasm in your heart? Or is it more accurate to say that you sighed? After all, there's a lot of travelling involved at London City Presbyterian Church. And uh, let's uh, also call a spade a spade that some people in our church like me can be kind of uh, difficult. And after all, have we not, when we look at it over these last few weeks and months, have we not been doing okay? Have we not been taking over fine with a video here and a video there? Do you see matter at hand? Is church really that important at all? Is it really essential for us to be heavily invested in a Christian community? Well, um, this morning, the portion of scripture that we're uh, turning to in First Peter is most fascinating. It's a section of scripture where Peter addresses what I'm sure you would agree is an often neglected portion or, or doctrine, rather, of scripture the idea, the reality of the doctrine of the church. And I am eager for us to hit the ground running this morning. What we're going to do just now, briefly, is to consider three questions, to see how Peter answers three questions in the text. So, let's make a start, shall we? If you have a Bible, have it open. If you don't, don't panic. Uh, Of course, uh, some of the verses will appear on screen uh, to help us all. So here's the first question. The first question this morning, what is God doing with the church? What is God doing with his people, with his church? A couple of weeks ago, um, I walked into my children's bedroom and I found the three of them playing uh, together on the floor. What they were doing was actually building uh, not just a toy house, but the three of them were building what they had planned out as their ideal house. And they were building it out of Lego. So what did this uh, this children's dream of a house look like? Well, the girls took it in one direction. They had ensured that this ideal house had space for Lego pets. So this house had a space for a Lego horse and some Lego chicken and stuff like that. Colin, my son on the other hand, he went in a different direction. He ensured that his ideal house had a massive Lego laser uh, to propel approaching Lego baddies. Okay, now, no matter what you think about that as an ideal house, uh, you see the idea. They're thinking through their ideal home. Well, in a sense, as we turn to First Peter, we could be thinking along those lines. After all, you notice the language there. What is God doing? God is, he is building a, a house, a, a home. We could be thinking like that. But I think if we are, we have to adjust our mindset ever so slightly. Because what do you know? You know, don't you, that in the Old Testament, that language, a spiritual house, it referred not so much to a family home or a family residence. What did it refer to? Uh, right, yeah, God's dwelling. It referred to the tabernacle or more precisely what is in view here, the temple. The temple. So even at the outset of this sermon, let me 
Let me implore you to do this, just to, to, to stop and to consider what it is that Peter is bringing to your attention right now. We're asking, aren't we, right now, is the church important? What is God doing with the church? Do you not see, do you not hear from Peter here? Right now, at this point in your life, Christian friend, God is at work. Whether you realise that, do you realise it? Whether you feel it in your heart, whether you know it to be true or not, listen, God is using you just now as a brick. God is using you as part of this miraculous, beautiful, divine building project right now. God fashioning you as part of a spiritual temple that will house his presence forever and ever and evermore. When you linger on it, isn't it marvellous? So that's a big picture, isn't it? What's God doing with the church? He's building us into this this temple. But I would suggest that is not enough for us. We want some real meat on the bones, don't we? So let me do this. Let me point you in the direction of one or two uh, truths that we learn here uh, about this temple. First thing is this. Notice that this is a corporate building project. A corporate building project. What do I mean by that? Well, I think perhaps now more than ever, then Christians can think of themselves as individual Christians, individual believers. I mean that not just because we're living in such an individualistic society, but I mean now in this time of pandemic when we're so cut off. You see what I mean? We could think about it. What is a Christian? We could answer that. Well, a Christian is somebody who trusts and believes in Jesus, but somebody who's called by God to kind of uh, plough their own furrow through this life for his glory. Yes, we're to tap into church to get some teaching and a bit of fellowship, but really that is only to empower us to live in our own sphere, our own area for the glory of Christ. That's what a Christian is. Well, even if that has been just, just a passing thought in your life, I would ask you right now to consider again the metaphor which God is confronting you with this morning. What is the image here? It's the image of a temple. Linger on that, a temple. What is God not seeing? He's not saying, I am building you singular up into a temple. He's not saying that. God is not promising that he is going to, oh, I'm going to fill the earth with lots of uh, individual temples, hundreds of thousands of Christians, hundreds and thousands of individual temples throughout the world. That's not what God is saying. You begin to see what I mean by this being a corporate image. What is God saying? He's building us up together. There is one temple in view here, and surely that is instructive. Surely there is a lesson in that for us. We must appreciate that in our conversion we have been called into something that is greater than ourselves. We must understand as Christians that we simply cannot function apart from, separate to, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you are a brick, you are a stone, you are made to be interlocking with other believers. You're made to be reliant upon other believers as you are built up in this life for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. A corporate image, a corporate project. Second thing, notice, moving very quickly on, is that this is also a Christ-centred project, a Christ-centred building project. Because next we ask, how 
don't we? Surely that's what we ask. We ask how not only do we become part of this building project, but how do we become increasingly built up into this temple? Well, God gives us the answer in verse 4. Have a look. We're asking, how, how do we become part of this building project? How are we built up? And he says, as you come to Christ, as you come to him, you yourselves are being built up. Now, that seems to answer the question, but be you know, ever so careful with that, because what, what do you think in the answer is there? You think Peter is saying this, you know, uh, it's all about you being converted. You repent, you believe, you come to Christ, and then throughout your life you'll gradually be built up into this temple, this this church with God. Is that it? Yeah, it is. But I do think we've got to be, uh, well, got to pay attention to the tense here. Now listen to this carefully. The tense there has the idea of an ongoing, repeated action. Do you see how that helps us? How are we matured? How are we built up and fashioned as part of God's temple? By coming to Christ and then by, throughout the Christian life, continuing to come to Christ. You see, the idea here is of this repeated action, drawing even daily close to Christ and doing so through his word and doing so by prayer. And so I'll be really pointed with you this Sunday morning, Christian friend, you're sitting there, you're listening, I hope watching. Is that what's happening in your life just now? Is it? Are you on a daily basis resolved to have as priority number one, communion with Jesus drawing near to Jesus that you yourself might be built up. So we have the reality, it's a corporate uh, building project. It is also a Christ-centred building project. The the third little detail I want you to notice is that it is also a Christ-reflecting building project. You see that there are some quite sharp cookies at London City Presbyterian Church, some people who are always on the ball. And if that's you, if you're one of them, perhaps you're sitting there thinking, well, that I have ever so slightly misrepresented the text. Because uh, to whom have I said it is crucial to come in order to be built up into this temple? What did I say? I said Christ. I said it's, we come to him. As we come to Christ, we're built up. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's not actually what the text says, is it? How are we, look with me? Do you see it in verse 4? Is as you come to him, but it doesn't say Christ specifically, although it is Christ that's in view, it's as you come to him, a living stone. A living stone. So what does that mean? Well, maybe immediately you begin to think of that Old Testament uh, image of a rock. Do we know that, don't you? God is a rock. God is the rock of my salvation. God is my refuge, my rock. We, we think like that, but that's not it. Is it? In fact, what Peter has in view here is the image of a cornerstone. That image that we saw quite clearly in Psalm 118, that we've just sung together. That's what Peter's quoting here. A messianic psalm. And it's a psalm, wait, a psalm that not only does Jesus quote of himself in the parable of the tenants, but get this. It's a psalm that Peter himself quotes in that sermon in Acts chapter 4. A psalm that's, that he uses to speak of Jesus' death, rejected by the builders at Calvary, but also to speak of Jesus' resurrection, approved of by God. He is now the living stone. What do you think? That's pretty cool, isn't it? 
like Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is today the cornerstone, the living stone. But actually right now, I don't want you to think about that so much as I want you to notice what God says of you. Look at verses 4 and 5 together. Isn't that amazing? Think of the language. As we come to Christ, who is Jesus? He is a living stone. What does God promise? We are, as we come to the living stone, we ourselves, like living stones, are being built up. Isn't that a marvellous reality? Did you see what Peter's saying? There is this fundamental similarity, this fundamental reflect, this fundamental union that exists between the members of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he is the foundational stone, the chief stone of this temple, we are like him. More than that, as we continue to come to Christ, what's been promised is that we will increasingly become like him. It's marvellous, is it not? Think of it, we're asking, is the church really important? Is it? You know, is it really worth, worth our while to focus on the church? What do we learn? As we live in Christian community, as we embrace Christian community, as we worship God through Christian community, what is God doing in our lives? By grace, he produces in you resemblance to Jesus of Nazareth. So it's a corporate building project, Christ-centred. It is a Christ-reflecting building project. The last of these little points is that it's also a challenging building project. A challenging building project. See, we all recognise that a mixed metaphor when we hear one. We know what's meant by a mixed metaphor, do we? Let me give you a couple of uh, stotters here, okay? Here's a couple of mixed metaphors. He sailed through life like a hot knife through butter, or one I might hear from my wife, uh, unless we tighten our belts, we'll sink like a stone. Okay, we get the idea of a mixed uh, metaphor. Well, in this section of scripture, some people actually accuse Peter of doing exactly that, of mixing his metaphors. You'll see what you, uh, what I mean by looking at verse 5, because he's been speaking about this temple, this building, this structure, but then what does he say? Listen, that we are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Do you see it? Like he moves from an image of a house, the temple, to that of the priesthood. So, uh, is that a mixed metaphor? Well, maybe it is. But surely you see the point Peter is making here. He's showing us that the calling of the church is not just to be the frame of the temple, not just to be the fabric of the temple, but the calling of the church is to fulfill the temple's function. Do you see it from moving from house to priesthood? Saying to us that we as the church are not just called to be the material of the temple to house the dwelling of God. But we are to embrace the mission of the temple as well. And you say to you, what is that? Well, I would say, read on, look at it. We are told that we're built up into this priesthood. Why? To offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Clearly not sacrifices for sin. We all know only Christ has done that. What type of sacrifices? Those of gratitude, of praise, of worship by conducting ourselves as Christians in everything to the glory of God. So as we end this point, let me just pause. Let me ask you to pause. 
And let's reflect. What's the question? Is the church of God, the church of the Lord Jesus, is it really that important to the people of God? Surely you read these verses in First Peter and you say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. Christian friend, I assure you that God can do great and wonderful things in your life for his name's sake. But he will do these things. How? In and through and as part of his church, this great temple being built for his glory. So we see what God is doing with his church. Second place to go, right? Remember we said, didn't we? We're going to have three questions. Second question that we're going to ask Peter is this. Who are we as members of the church? Who are we as members of the church? Okay, have you ever been on the social media platform Twitter before? Uh, if so, if you're on Twitter, you'll know that uh, there is a thing called a Twitter bio. Twitter bio for the uninitiated. A Twitter bio is where this uh, platform allows users, in just a few words, to say something about themselves. You know, to say, uh, give a short description about what they think kind of sums them up or best best defines them. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. James Jones, husband, father, a follower of Tottenham Hotspur. Okay, so he wants you to know he supports Tottenham. That's how he views his identity. Okay, or Julie Jones, American, artist, coffee lover, extraordinaire. Everyone's getting the idea. You get the idea, don't you? Perhaps know it already. Perhaps you have your own Twitter bio, okay? But things that are said about ourselves that define us, best sum up our identity. Well, if you cast your mind back to the beginning of this letter, First Peter, perhaps you'll remember that that theme has been prominent in the mind of Peter. He's writing, recall, to Christians, Gentile Christians predominantly, in Asia Minor, who are uh, troubled. They are all at sea. They are bewildered about their position in society and who they are in Christ. And how does he begin the letter? He speaks of their identity. Now he doesn't, he says, you are elect exiles. That's who you should think about, you, how you should think about yourselves. You are chosen by God, you see? Well, here, as Peter ends the first main section of his letter, what Peter does is he returns to that theme of identity. But listen to me. Here, he doesn't speak about how we should view ourselves as individual Christians. He speaks about how we should think about our own identity as part of God's church. And so this is really important. How do you view yourself? Peter's going to tell us how a Christian should think about their identity in the corporate sense. So what does he say? Well, you look with me to verse 9. What do you see? You've got here three descriptions. I'm just going to mention these in a word, but follow them through. First, who are you? So yes, you. If you're a Christian watching this just now, he's speaking to you. Who are you? What's your identity? What does he say? You are part of a chosen race. So a people and a people selected by God and elect for himself. Then second, who are you? Yes, you watching, Christian friends. You are part of a royal 
priesthood. So you are one of a number, uh, a plethora of spiritual attendants to a king, a royal priesthood. Then what's the third one? You are part of a holy nation. Like uh, people not just set apart for God, but a people who are uh, set apart to seek purity and righteousness before God. Are you with me? This is a pretty epic Twitter bio that you've got yourself, isn't it? You know, it's like, ah, Peter Huey, husband, father, member of a royal priesthood, or uh, at Mary Reed, uh, musician, harpist, uh, 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 part of a holy nation. It is amazing. But what's the obvious thing for us to say here? The obvious thing to say about these terms, what are they? You know the answer, right? They're Old Testament terms. Right? But... Peter is actually at this point, he is quoting Exodus 19. He's using terms that God has used for his, for his people. And, and, and so in light of that, is what Peter's saying here not absolutely amazing, isn't it? It's so incredible. How should these first century Greek converts understand their identity? Now, 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 wait. How should you understand who you are? Listen, here, Peter is saying, that you and I are part of the true Israel of God. Isn't that the fundamental point that Peter is making here? That you are a spiritual Israelite. Now dwell on it and think about it. That just as that ancient people were chosen by God to be his from out of all of the nations. Listen to me, so are you. Now, just as that ancient people were given the most lasting, proper, concrete, covenantal promises, so have you. Isn't it the most delightful thing you could ever imagine? It is such common language. We hear it all of the time, but I wonder if you've ever lingered on it. I wonder if you are viewing yourself in those terms. You are part of a chosen people, a cherished people, a protected people, right? You are part of a loved people. You are part of the true Israel of Almighty God. Now, as soon as we begin to linger on that, doubts begin to flood into our minds. I think we are so, so sinful and so wicked, aren't we? How can this ever be true? Well, look at it. God tells you. Have a look at verse 9. He says that you have become part of Israel. Why? Because you have been called out of. Now get the words and make sure you hear them. You've been called out of darkness into light. I reckon you see what that is, don't you? It is creation language. That you really this morning can bask in this exalted status you have as a chosen uh, people. Why? Why does this belong to you? Because it's not of you, but by grace. By grace, God has, has spoken into that dark void that was your heart, just like in creation. And he has brought forth by his word light and the light of life. Isn't it magnificent? Isn't it amazing? And we begin almost to reel back. So splendid is this reality. And we ask, Lord, what is your purpose with this? Why have you engrafted people like us, Gentile scum, Gentile dogs, into your 
a covenantal people. And again, he tells us the answer. What is the purpose of all of this? Why are we made a royal priesthood? Look at the words. Why all that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us? Friends, don't don't you see it? You and I must stop thinking of ourselves in such small terms. Stop thinking of ourselves as individual, isolated believers. Why? Because we have been called to work together as spiritual attendants to the King of Kings, to work together as a royal priesthood, to make the name of Jesus known across this dead, dark, dying, sin-scarred world. We are called to announce the goodness of God. So we've seen what God is doing. He's building this temple. We've seen who we are. We are a continuation of Israel, the true Israel. But here's the truth. I've been kind of bombarded in the last few weeks by statistics. Other ministers and leaders love to send out statistics about who it is exactly that's tuning into these services that people are putting uh, out. And it is said, um, whether we believe it or not, that there has been a massive increase in unbelieving people, strangers to the church, newcomers to Christianity, who have been tuning into worship services up and down the UK. So, if that's you, if you are joining and watching this video, then surely there is a, you're watching it and you're not a believer. Surely there is a third question. What about you? This morning we have focused so much on the people of God. But here's the third question. What of those who are not part of the church? Well, here Peter does something that I suppose is not all that common in Holy Scripture. What he does is he speaks with great detail about the fate of those who are not Christians, those who are outside of the church and outside of Christ. Now, to appreciate what Peter is saying here, what I think you and I need to do is establish his field of vision, his scope, what it is that he is looking at. So I'll tell you what, have a, have a, a gander at verse 6 there. Like, do, you, do you see that verse 6, verse 7, there's a contrast being drawn up. Like in verse 6, Peter is quoting Isaiah 28. He's speaking of the people of God and he makes his readers a promise. He's primarily writing to these, these first century Greek Christians. And you know this scenario, they're marginalized, they're ridiculed by a society. But what does he say? Peter looks ahead doesn't he? And he says, that in effect, one day, what's the words? At the end of all things, he says, they will not be put to shame. Do you, do you see the field of vision? Peter's looking ahead to the final consummation of all things. The last day, a day, Christian friend, a day when we will receive what verse 7 says is the honour of God. Honour. So we get it. He's, he, what's the field of vision? He's looking to the final, the final reckoning of all things. Things, but wait a minute, what do we still need to know? What is going to happen on that day to those who are outside of the church? I would ask you, especially if you're a Christian, to please hear this, to please listen. 
We're told here that in the last reckoning, as everyone stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth is those outside of repentance and faith in Jesus, we're told here by the Bible, by God's word, that they will topple, that they will fall. Do you see the words in verse 8? That on that last day as we stand before God, those outside of Christ will stumble on Christ. That they will face the opposite of the honour that will come to the believer. That they will face condemnation. They will stumble into judgment. And if you are one of those people who don't normally come to church and don't normally listen to a Christian sermon, you're maybe thinking, well, that sounds absolutely abhorrent like seems so unjust I mean how dare Christians believe that there is condemnation or hell but as you take a step back and you view this portion of scripture do you not see the reason why let me let me spell it out to you if you're not trusting in Christ listen friend you are the builder who is rejecting the cornerstone of God. That is who you are presently. You are the builder. We are in a dreadful plight in humanity. You must see that as you look to the George Floyd stuff and the riots and the the brokenness of society. We are stained by sin. We are separate from God. What has God done? God, though we don't deserve it, has provided a saviour. Yes, has saviour at great cost to himself. He has sent his son to, to live and die and rise for us. And what are you doing? You are stepping over that cornerstone. You are rejecting the risen living stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to build your own temple, your own life without reference to Jesus Christ. You are the builder rejecting the risen Lord. Friends, please understand this, that the dividing point in this section of scripture, but the dividing point in all of human history comes down to belief in the Lord Jesus Christ or not. You can see it in the text, can't you? Do you see it? Those who believe are honoured. Those who remain in belief are the ones who stumble. So I urge you right now, confronted with the truth of the gospel, I urge you, even at this very hour, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Friends, the Lord Jesus is the foundation stone of his people, the one who holds us up and keeps us secure. The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has borne the punishment for his people's sins. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that the rest of us long to get back to LCPC to worship and to do so as part of a great spiritual house. We long to worship Jesus Christ as part of his church. Friends, will you please pray with me? Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we pray to you, staggered at what you're doing. We're staggered at your grace that you would call people out of darkness into light, that you would make us part of your holy people, 
that you would build us up, that we forevermore shall know the presence of Almighty God. Lord, we do ask that you would make people Christians at this hour, that people would see that they are rejecting Jesus, that they would repent of their sin and embrace by faith the Lord of glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.